everybody, this is Charles Hain here with the No Film School podcast for the week of July 15th, 2021. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. I'm here with writer, filmmaker, podcaster, Kath Tolentino. Hello. And we are going to be talking about how two mega blockbuster directors support each other and the lessons we can all learn about how filmmakers can support each other. We are going to be talking about completely... Oh, we're going to be talking about the new Paul Verhoeven movie and also a little bit of gossip from another podcast that is relevant, which is about the re-inclusion of sex and cinema and who makes the most sense to be telling those stories. I think this also probably ties to Zola. We're going to be talking about an in-memoriam for the filmmaker that really... Actually, like I think we can give Richard Donner credit for this, launched the concept of good superhero movies. I don't think people thought superhero movies could be good before Richard Donner. He passed this week, and we're going to talk about it. We've got tech news with Quentin Tarantino buying a theater, and I'm going to count it as tech news because there's a tech angle. And then we've got an Ask No Film School about unhappy clients, something we've all been there this week on the No Film School podcast. All right, our top story this week. This is a strange headline, but there's so much to talk about, and I really loved it. So apparently, Chris Nolan and Zack Snyder, who are two very different filmmakers, but they both worked for Warner Brothers and worked on DC movies and apparently are friendly, have a tradition of watching each other's movies before releases with no notes. Like, they watch each other's movies, and the tradition is they don't, they don't give any feedback. But there's not a lot of heartwarming stories in the mega blockbuster universe, but it made me so happy to hear this because I think that there's a real beauty... You are going to get noted to death on every project you ever make, ever. You are going to work with so many people who give notes because it's clear that they feel like it's their job to give notes, and they might not actually have anything to say. Um, <laughs> I remember I was working on one... Oh, God, I was working on this one screenwriting project. And it was a war movie, and it was all like, you know, it, it was like fun. And I was working, and like one of the executives was like, what if they found a little orphan, and they kept the orphan with them for the rest of the movie? <laughs> And everybody else in the meeting was like, you just feel like you have to say something. And we're all just going to, nobody even responded. We were all like, okay, <laughs> okay, <laughs> we'll write that note down and move along. Cause like, it was just the most, it had, you know, I've heard it's like those. me and my writing, old, me and my writing partner still joke about some. And there were some on a war script that we were just like staring into space. Did you listen? What the hell? Like, but, but yeah, but I'm going to go one step further and say the beauty of this for me is the understanding of, like, the notes I've gotten that I've valued the most are notes from other filmmakers. I've had amazing experiences, like, halfway through post, where a director I respect or a producer I respect comes in and watches something, and they're like, oh, my God, wait a minute, dude, you're, like, dragging in this half. Or, like, oh, wait a minute, you take this scene from the ending and you put it in the opening and it becomes a mystery. And I'm like, and it's, like, these great, generous, sweet notes that always require a lot of work to execute, but they're given in time where you still have time to maybe try them and explore, and that's the beauty of post. But this is a tradition that seems to be drawn out of, the movie's really close to done. It's way too late to be like, well, what if Tenet happened in the Old West? Like, you know, it's, it's way too late for that, and it's like just a moment to like celebrate each other and, put, and support each other before the movie comes out. Because I've also had a lot of experiences. I had a huge argument with a friend after a project of mine came out. And it had been out for like two months, and he'd had Apple opportunities to see it in the rough cut stage. And like he just started noting me to death about a project that was like two months finished and like publicly released and on Amazon Prime. We had a huge argument. We talked for like months after because he was just like noting to me to death. And I was like, dude, I, 
I'm done. It's delivered. It was like incredibly hard to make. It's like hard to make anything. At a certain point, like, shouldn't you just support your friends? Yeah, that's kind of inappropriate behavior, TBH. I would also have gotten pissed off. (laughs) Yeah, and actually a different friend on the same project, Salty Pirate apparently was very controversial among my friends. Another one was like, oh man, I've got all these ideas for music if you want to go back in. And I was like, it is so hard to do anything. It is so hard to do anything that the fact that it is done on the budget where I did it, no, I'm not going back in and changing the sound. Unless like a network came to me with the money to throw at it and, and their stipulation was changing the sound, then I would consider it. But like... But uh, yeah, I like the idea of these two filmmakers being like, we're just going to watch each other's films and there's no notes. I love that. Yeah, my my joke would be that like Christopher Nolan would just have so many notes for Zack Snyder. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking. Maybe they, yeah, I, they've worked together. Nolan's a producer on some of the Snyder Warner Brothers projects and I'm sure they have a long relationship. And, you know, I've come to this thought recently. It, it started... Well, it started a long time ago, but I, you know, I, I had Ben Mankiewicz, who is the TCM host on this podcast recently. You can find that episode. And we talked about his podcast, which is called The Plot Thickens. And they're doing one about Bonfire of the Vanities, which is a De Palma movie based on a Tom Wolfe book. And it was this mega flop. And one of the things that fascinated me as we discussed that I've come to is that the idea, long way of getting to the point. The idea of of like every movie has to be really good or every show has to be really good or every script has to be really good. Like, yes, we all want that. But the odds are never in favor of that. It's very, very hard. And I think sometimes the note process transforms from the, I'm trying to help you figure out how to fix this or, or get it better or get you to the next stage. And it becomes sort of like a I know it's best and I'm proving that I have good ideas or that I know better or I'm putting my own imprint upon this thing or I'm, you know, it's, it's kind of impossible to fix at certain stages. Like you're saying, like what's done is done. I had a friend who used to work for Bob Odenkirk and uh, a long time ago and he came into the edit room a couple of times and he was like, guys, I think we're playing with our poop here because it was like, it's done. You know, like there's only so much you can do. And I always think about that because no matter how much you think might fix it or might change, like you're kind of get to a point where you're like, what are we, what are we doing here? Like we're, we're done. And I've had the experience with a finished product where people say like the first act is slow. It's like, yeah, I, I get that. Like a lot of people have said it and there's nothing I can do about it at this point. So sometimes where I'm going with this is sometimes what people need to hear is what's working. And it's hard as the note giver because we all think or are trained to think our job is constructive criticism, make it better, be critical, come down hard, find the flaws. I had someone I worked for for a long time who always said, your job when you're giving notes is to find mistakes, look for them, be hungry for them. And I never, ever agreed with that. I don't believe that is true. I think sometimes your job is very much to find things that are working. And because a creative endeavor, and almost all endeavors have some creative force to them. I mean, even if you're building a spreadsheet sometimes in a business, like there's some like, you need to be encouraged and motivated. And part of that comes from hearing what's good and knowing and believing, you know, it can't just be smoke. You can't be blowing smoke. It has to be like, we hear these stories about filmmakers talking to each other where like, 
the guys all, speaking of De Palma, they all walked out of the Star Wars screening that Lucas gave, this legendary one, and mocked him and told him how bad it was. And, you know, that I think we're replacing maybe, and the reason you say this is heartwarming is we could replace with Nolan and uh, Snyder watch each other's movies and they just are like, great, you know, congratulations. And and like, I've heard Quentin Tarantino uh, say that he he goes, someone told me they were at a screening that he was at of his movie, Heart Eight maybe. No, no, sorry, not Heart Eight, Hateful Eight. And he just brought a big bucket of popcorn and sat down to watch it. And he was like, I'm just here to be a fan and watch the movie. He's he's weird, but like, but I just but think that there's he's a, be a fan of his own movies. That's right, so right, fun, and it's his know? own movie. I mean, he's his theaters are constantly screening his own movies, and he's always there. I think, <laughs> like, but I, I, I'm long way of just going to like, not every movie is going to be perfect. No note is going to make something go from like you know imperfect to perfect, and the process we should try and encourage people to be bold and creative and happy and motivated instead of the brow beating, which I think like there's so many things you can't fix or change. Right. So yeah, I love this. And I, and I would love to change the, I would like, what's the tweet, the Twitter cliche now normalize blank. blank. I think like normalize good notes and no bad notes, like just normalize giving good notes. Well, I think I'm, so I'm in a writer's group with a few friends and we have a practice of anytime someone is sharing pages, we, before we start the discussion, we will pose the question like, okay, what kind of notes are you looking for? And sometimes it's also easy to tell like if someone's very early on in their process and they it's like a super rough draft or they just have like, you know, a few pages and a lookbook of things that inspire them. It's very clear that like giving any sort of negative notes would not be helpful to that process. And so it changes for each person in each week. It's like sometimes someone is like, I've worked super hard on this and I took some time away from it and now I'm ready to get back in. And so I want everything that's wrong about this script now. Or sometimes it's like, I'm feeling kind of nervous about this idea and I think it might be crap. So please tell me like that it's okay or if you think it's okay or what things you like about it just to help me get back into it. And I love that we do that because it always makes for a very fruitful discussion. Every week is different. You know, we're not always looking for the same things. You know, Ryan Koo of, of No Film School has a saying he's used, he's told me before where he's like, sometimes it feels like Hollywood sort of eats its own and doesn't develop. And I think part of it is that there's a culture of like everything that's wrong with this instead of trying to find mm-hmm. when someone's coming up like, here's what you got right. Here's what's working really well. Like, the instinct is just like, let's just rip it apart. I don't think that's always constructive. Well, no, first off, I just wanted to flag, like, the beautiful thing you brought up, which is, like, writers groups are amazingly powerful. Most of the people I know who are successful writers were either in a writers group as part of their process to getting there, or some people I know who are, like, successful working writers are still in writers groups. The same way, like, I remember when I moved to L.A. and I would discover that, like, working actors were still taking acting classes, and I'd be like, but they're already in movies. And my actor friends would be like, yeah, but they want to keep growing. So they're continuing to like, because like my friends would be taking an acting class with like Giovanni Ribisi in it or something. That's like one example from the Beverly Hills Playhouse. But like, I was like, but Giovanni Ribisi is already in stuff. And they're like, yeah, but in between stuff, he wants to grow. So writers groups are amazing. And I love that it sounds like your writers group had a very active, has a very active conversation. I mean, consent is the wrong word, but about like boundaries, like 
Here's what kind of conversations we want to have about these things. And I think that's super beautiful because like the more active we are about that, the better the process will go. And then I just wanted to bring up this thing. Now I, I learned this from a meme. So take it with a grain of salt. This could be complete bullshit. But according to this <laughs> meme I just read, the CIA's infiltration. So the CIA used to deliberately dis- like they would add plants to like leftist groups and revolutionary groups trying to make America better. And they'd add plants to them to slow them down because they're not interested in improving America. And uh <laughs> And occasionally it would turn out that like everyone was a plant, like there was no one who wasn't a plant, which is hilarious to me. But apparently in their guide, they had these rules for like how to act in meetings to slow things down. And it's like one of the rules is like make a lot of speeches, take talk as much as possible, bring up as relevant issues as frequently as possible. My favorite one was number six, refer back to matters decided upon at the last meeting and attempt to (laughs) reopen them. And I was like, whether or not this is really the CIA disruption pattern, these are the people who ruin meetings. And for me, it's all, you know, filmmaking is this giant decision tree where you constantly want to give yourself as much time as possible to make a decision. And then when it's time to make a decision, you just have to make it and move to the next one. So at the beginning, at the blank page, you can make a Western, you can make a medieval movie, you can make a drama, you make whatever you want. By the time you get to set, you hopefully have picked your location. I have a buddy who works a lot in like uh, virtual production where like there's a camera and, and he's like generating the backgrounds and there's actors on stage. And he's like, it's a screaming nightmare because it used to be you picked a location and everybody came to set and, you, you know, the the agency was never like, can we move that tree? And he's like, I've literally spent two hours with agency creatives rearranging the forest behind the, the lead actor for these virtual productions. And I don't think it improves it two hours worth of time. That's two hours we should have been like getting shots. You need and, an AD. Where's the AD? <laughs> no, huh. Well, virtual production is such a mess for that kind of stuff. So it's like, it, you know, it, it takes time and experience to learn what are the decisions that are relevant at a given time. Mm-hmm. Like two weeks before a movie opens, I think the only note you could give two weeks before a movie opens, and and you could... You could say that Nolan's probably gotten better about this now. Is you could probably say, I can't understand what Bane is saying. Because I think that's still <laughs> fixable a week before opening <laughs> if you remix the movie. Because that was a that was like a legitimate note that hopefully, you know. I think they remixed that movie so we could understand Bane better, right? I hope so. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've heard that somewhere. Maybe on yeah. our website. Um, but yeah, the, a big endorsement for like also, the other thing that's beautiful about it is that they clearly understand they're not in competition with each other. That, like, there's room for Zack Snyder and Chris Nolan to both be making movies. No, it's both straight, two straight white guys. Like, there's room, hopefully there's room for a whole bunch of other people to be making movies. But, you know, there's, we don't all have to cut each other's throats. These are not two filmmakers who are trying to push each other down. They're, they're supportive of each other. And I thought that was great. Yeah, it's not uh, scarcity is really not a thing. It's an illusion in in these industries. Like one person's success is not necessarily going to hold you back. Just like your so one person's failure doesn't necessarily mean an opportunity for you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, moving on. Next story this week. Paul Verhoeven, beloved by Abed for the making of RoboCop and beloved by many other people for many other movies, including Basic Instinct, is returning with a new film that deals with a lesbian nun and puts sexuality at the forefront and is be giving interviews talking about the importance of sexuality in cinema. It's interesting to wonder. I mean, the issue this brings up for me is, yes, sex is part of life. For many of us, there are asexual people, so not, you know, largely for them, although they still have to deal with sexuality all around them. So, like, yes, it should be part of the language of what we can talk about and communicate about in movies, without a doubt. But then the real question becomes, like, who is the right person to show the nuance and understanding of a story that tells the story accurately and with sensitivity? And, the, and, and I think that's what Verhoeven sort of misses when he talks about it. You know, we think about Zola, which came out recently, which like famously was originally going to be directed by James Franco. (laughs) You know, there's lots of reasons James Franco left the project of the African-American sex worker dancer going on a Twitter documented adventure. There's lots of reasons James Franco shouldn't be the one telling that story. But then he got me too'd and stepped away and uh, Janiska Bravo pitched and got it. And Janiska Bravo was great. And it was a much different movie because of that. And I don't think we can argue that it wouldn't have been a different movie with Janiska Bravo telling that story than James Franco. So I'm not saying you have to have lived the exact experience to make a movie. Like, I don't think you have to have been a lesbian nun in the Middle Ages to make a movie about a lesbian nun in the Middle Ages. I think that we can, like, have empathy for other people's experiences. But I just also wonder if, like, Verhoeven is the right person. I also just listened to that. If you guys don't listen to it, you must remember this. It's a great history podcast by Karina Longworth about Hollywood history. And there was just like a 10 part series on Polly Platt. If you don't know who Polly Platt is, go listen to that. Polly Platt's amazing. And uh, she tells a story about a very unpleasant dinner with Verhoeven. So I'm not like super pro Verhoeven right now. I frankly don't get what people like about Basic Instinct. Well, camp. I mean, as camp, as like, as kitsch, like if you take it, like it's, it's, yeah, it, yeah. It's just like I, so. I so, mean, as a as a female viewer, it's just like such a troubling movie. It's just such a stereotypical like crazy girlfriend movie. Um, and and Paul Verhoeven does not seem to me to be the type of director that should direct a lesbian nun movie. Having seen Basic Instinct, it's just very clear. Like, I like what he's saying about, like, yes, sex is a part of life. It's, like, the most natural thing that we do as animals. But sex is different from the way sex is portrayed in movies, which has a lot to do with, like, you know, you can get into, like, the male gaze and, like, people's opinions about the other gender and those things filter in and create something that's different from just sex as sex. And to me, Basic Instinct was like just a very problematic movie. That's not to say like, look, I love the movie um, Carol, which is also a lesbian movie directed by 
Todd Haynes. Such a great, such a great movie about two lesbians. Todd Haynes does a wonderful job directing that film. Paul Verhoeven, I don't know. I just don't know. I like both what both of you are saying here, and I and I agree on many levels. I think it's important to consider the context of who's making us telling a story and and what's motivating them from a perspective standpoint. I also personally think it's important that we not, you know, oh, how do I say this? I don't think we can decide who can and can't tell certain stories. I think we should be very openly like, hey, you know, if so-and-so, if, if a white, a straight white man wants to try and tell a story that has absolutely nothing to do with his experience, is there a better person to tell that story from that point of view? Absolutely. But I don't necessarily feel like as a rule, they shouldn't be allowed to in some sense. Just like I, you know, I'm comfortable with somebody making a horrible mistake or intentionally saying something truly offensive because then at least, you know, we can identify them as what they are. They're not hiding. So then we know like, hey, that guy is a, that guy's a jerk. But I think with Verhoeven, he falls into this really weird category where his filmmaking is it pushes buttons intentionally. There's a satirical element and we're in a weird period of time where we are, satire is complicated right now by a lot of forces. Think about just Starship Troopers, like getting away from the the stuff, the, the recent movie. Starship Troopers is a film that he's absolutely equipped to make in the sense that like it's not, you know, his perspective isn't, isn't skewed from it, right? It's 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 about it's sci-fi, it's kitsch, it's campy, but it's also about propaganda, it's about nazism, it's about military, it's about <laughs> it's and and you can as you watch it, there's confusion, there's potential for almost dangerous confusion where people won't really get the satire. They won't won't really see the perspective. They won't see what he's doing. And they would buy it on different, buy into it on different levels. And I think that's kind of interesting and valuable, even if it leads to misunderstanding, because it can also lead to interesting debate. Because you can walk out of the movie and someone can be like, I really loved it from a straightforward, like they blew stuff up perspective. And someone else be like, dude, you missed the point. Or, you know, like, (laughs) like, that's not what this is about. There's levels to which you can appreciate it. Now, basic instinct, I agree, like it's a different story, it's a different thing, and he's portraying women in a certain way that becomes problematic as he is a white man. But if you can if you step set that aside and you see it as like he's he's doing something similar to the idea of the femme fatale, to the noir, to the you know, that that genre, just like he would have been in Starship Troopers with war movies and propaganda and just like Robocop and police and law enforcement. He's always up to something, you know? So I like that, even if I don't like what he's saying. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I like that he's a troublemaker, but like, and I don't, and I think white, straight white men should be able to make movies about lesbians if they feel like it, if they do it with sensitivity and they do it with some attempt. Yeah, if they do the work. And the issue, I think, with Verhoeven is that, like, Basic Instinct didn't show much interest in doing the work of, of moving that into an interesting place at all. And, but, and then the other thing that's just disappointing at this time is that, like, you know, I guarantee you, like, I don't know, I, think, I, I keep thinking about this in relation to Zola, where it's like, 
you know, clearly other people were ready to step in and tell the story of Zola mm-hmm. and do it in a better way where they were willing to do the work. And like, I don't know, Janice Bravo, I met her at a party once, but like, I don't know if she was ever a dancer, but like, she clearly was willing to do the work to understand the context of what that meant. Mm-hmm. And that is the kind of thing that I can't always, you know, after Basic Instinct, not all, don't always have the same faith. I, he also did a movie 10 years ago about a woman who, a Dutch woman who ended up working as a sort of prostitute for the Nazis and then got shamed afterwards. And it was like an attempt to be more nuanced and complicated, but also I think was kind of exploitative in places where I don't think it was necessarily appropriate to be. I mean, I think everybody yeah. should have the freedom if they do the work to make the movie. I also just like coming off, I mean, it just happened. I just listened to the Polly Pat podcast where like, you know, they were talking about her directing a movie. And like, if you're a Polly Platt fan, everybody wishes she had directed a movie. Polly Platt's amazing. I was lucky enough to read her adaptation of my favorite book. All my friends are going to be strangers once. And it's great. She was a great writer, great production center, great producer, like a major talent. And, you know, after dinner, he reached up her shirt and felt her up and was like, you'll never direct this movie if you don't sleep with me. Now, that story is told in her unpublished autobiography. He denies it. I'm going to choose to believe Polly Platt because I just want to believe Polly Platt. And just be disgusted at Paul Verhoeven right now. And that, you know, those kinds of things are rampant, should be exposed, and absolutely should impact someone's career trajectory and stuff like that. I'm with you there. But I also think it's, here's the, if he makes insensitive movies, if he decides that he or anybody decides to tell those stories, but doesn't do the work, will they show you who they are in a way then that you could be like, yeah, I'm not going to go see the next time. Like, I'm not going to support it. I don't want to see it. But I know that's he's the not thing willing. is like, we he's already shown that. And he's here he is making a movie about lesbians. And like, we already know that he doesn't have the kind of sensitivity to do that. And there are already other people out there who could do a better job. Well, I just haven't seen any other of his movies except for Basic Instinct. But I just have a feeling like that I'm probably not going to like his movie. And You yeah, should watch I, RoboCop. I, RoboCop rules. You should watch RoboCop. That's fair. RoboCop is RoboCop. amazing. That's that's a different that's a di- totally different genre. Yeah. We're not talking about that genre right now. And this is about like yeah, the ethics and morality around who should be telling what stories. And I'm I side with you guys on this. Uh, I personally feel that as long as you know we say write what you know, right? And if you are truly willing to get to know the population that you're writing about and really treat it with care, and by that I mean like be very careful, like full of care about the people that you're representing and make sure that you're doing it well and, and not just reinforcing um, tired stereotypes that could potentially hold that group back or have been holding that group back, then great. Like if you're going to do a good job, great. If you can tell by this person's track record that they don't have that kind of sensitivity or like truly don't care enough, then not the person that you want making that movie. Well, it's like, if you think about Carrie Joji Fukunawa, who like, before Sinobre, like went to the area where Sinobre was set and spent time there to absorb the culture and try and write the story of Sinobre from a place of like something resembling authenticity, which is like totally. not the world he grew up in, but he wanted. And like that's the kind of thing that we're hoping for and expecting from filmmakers. Because like, let's not forget, like, you know, everyone is everyone is simultaneously capable of trying to be good. There are female filmmakers out there that were Nazis. Lenny Riefenstahl, total Nazi. So like, it's not that, you know, it's not like male filmmakers bad, female filmmakers good. Right. It's like, it's like, you know, are you trying to bring an authentic 
something to the experience. Because, yeah, I guarantee you there's an amazing movie about lesbians directed by a man. I yeah. want to say... Carol is so good. Carol is so good. I, I was just, yeah. I'm just going to throw out there, because, Kathy, you reminded me of it. You, the perfect example of this, this movie, Concrete Cowboy, that's on Netflix. It came out in April. And I interviewed Ricky Staub, who wrote and directed it. And he's a white guy. And this is a story about African-Americans in a city who were, it's a true story about the Fletcher Street Urban Riding Club. These guys raised horses. They were cowboys, basically, and they had horses and stables, and they still do. And it's really cool. It's a great, he basically, to tell the story, he just embedded himself in this world. He got to know the people it was really about, and he spent a lot of time earning their trust to tell their story. And it's mm-hmm. that story is great, because he really was like, I care about the story. I want to tell it. I care about these people and I care about doing it right. And he wasn't the natural pick, but it was a great example of like, hey, prove that you can tell, that you can become a filter for it, that you can do it with care. Like you said, honestly, I love that. And you're right. Like, it's a shame. I agree with you, Kath. It's a shame that someone could prove that they're not really going to do that. And they keep getting turns at bat anyway to do it when it's like, hey, we already know. Like, find somebody who wants to do the work. They're out Mm -hmm. there and wants to tell the story authentically or has some deeper connection to it. Or so many times you talk to a filmmaker and you're like, you don't really have an obvious connection to this material. And and they'll tell you why they, how they developed one. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want to see because it gets you closer to an experience and and something authentic. And I think it's no accident that Verhoeven is great at telling stories that address fascism because his best movies address those ideas, right? RoboCop, in my opinion, Starship Troopers, like he really has a connection to that. And there's other things he does not have a connection to that he tells stories about and it doesn't work as well. And that makes sense. And we all have our blind spots. Like, yes, I'm a female filmmaker, but I know that like one of my blind spots is like, I probably, if I were to sit down and write a lesbian movie right now, it probably wouldn't be that good because I'm not a lesbian. I don't, I'm not part of that community. I'm not part of that population. I don't know very much about it. So I would have to do the work to do something like that and actually make it like a very like authentic and and real film that does justice to the community. And like, I also happen to be mixed race, but having grown up in America and only speaking English first and foremost, there's I have less of a connection to the cultures that my my previous generations of my family are from. And so I even have blind spots when I'm making movies about like, you know, uh, Chinese characters or Salvadoran characters, which is where my family's from. And so it's always good to be mindful of like, how is my perspective being shaped by the culture that I grew up in? And how is that going to affect what I'm making about this other culture that I'm interested in? You know? Yeah. It's like, do the research for people. Yeah. I think that's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to want to do. It's going to make you a better storyteller. You're going to find interesting things as you go. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On from there to a subject that you can't do a ton of research about, 
which is superhero movies, and the filmmaker that arguably ushered in the modern era in superhero cinema. Yeah, so the passing of Richard Donner, great filmmaker, and I think that it's a perfect segue, Charles, because my favorite thing about Richard Donner as a film fan and filmmaker and uh, everything, human being, is that he had this rule when they made Superman. So Superman was his, you know, one of his big projects and it was the Christopher Reeve one that, you know, at the time, if you go back in history, folks, and you watch the Batman show of the 60s or the Batman serials, black and white from prior to that, or any, there was no version of a story on screen with superheroes that wasn't like overtly silly on some level because it was an overtly silly concept. Like nobody really treated it with that kind of straightforward, hey, what if this was real? And he had this rule. He had the word verisimilitude printed and put on posters all around the production offices. This is my favorite story about him because he, and it meant, it means like truthfulness or honesty or he, he wanted everybody to approach making this Superman movie as though it was real and honest. There was no tongue in cheek. They were going to treat it like, what if Superman was real? What would the world be like? How would we treat it? Yes, he's going to wear this brightly colored, ridiculous thing. It's tight. He's wearing tights and a cape. Yes, he can fly and shoot beams out of his eyes. Remember in 1979 or 1978, even though Star Wars had come out, this was just, we were just starting to really make movies for like kids and the kids and adults. You know, Watergate had happened. The big movies of late had been things like All the President's Men and Network. Like this was a different world, absolutely different than the world we are in right now in terms of entertainment. And I want to highlight for everybody, not just as like a history lesson, but just as like filmmakers and storytellers that Richard Donner brought this idea of, I'm going to treat this thing seriously. Now we've come to a completely different place where if anything, we're treating superhero stuff too seriously. <laughs> like we need to do the opposite, I think, and recognize that these things are a little bit silly, but he created a generation of monsters and fans in a way. And he created a way of approaching this stuff that is, you know, I mean, he put Marlon Brando in it, which is again now like every serious actor is going to be in superhero stuff. But at that time, it was a patently absurd thing to be like, we're going to put a guy that people consider the greatest actor ever. He's going to play Superman's dad. That was a very silly idea, but they did it. They took it seriously. And I think that that changed the course of cinema. And he made a ton of other great movies too. Goonies, Scrooge, all kinds of stuff. And apparently he was a great guy. So that's my spiel. But I wanted to know if you guys had particular thoughts about it. I, I feel like it's such an important stepping stone to where we are, that the way he, he made that movie. Yeah, you've convinced me. I haven't seen it and now I'm going to go out and watch it. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that his approach to the Superman movies was so earnest for me. Goonies was a seminal movie of my childhood, and I feel like he took it. This he he had a similar approach to Goonies, which is Goonies is a movie about a bunch of kids, and there are some ridiculous adventure moments. But there is also sort of a sense with which you can tell when filmmakers are sort of phoning it in for kids' work, or like I don't care if it's dumb for kids' work, but there's a real sense <laughs> of like care and polish in Goonies, despite the fact that it is for kids. That made it um, Goonies worked. Such a great point. I, I want to piggyback to that because 
those kids had serious drama, those characters, he treated them like they were adults in a way. He treated it like it mattered, like their stakes mattered and their story mattered. And I think that made it connect to kids because I also felt it was, I think a lot of people, obviously, it was seminal because you could relate. You were like, hey, these kids are real. They're not just goofy kids. It's treated like they were legit and their story arc was legit and their adventure was meaningful. And it was easy to sink into it for that reason. All right. Rest in peace, Richard Donner. At 91, he was still prepping his next movie. Wow. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you like what you do, you don't really need to retire. You can keep going. And it had been a couple of years since he'd made something, but he was trying to get something going again. And like, respect. I mean, Altman died prepping a movie. I mean, honestly, prep is such a great phase when everything feels possible and all of your dreams are massive. Prep, prep is probably a great time to go. <laughs> Maybe we all die prepping. <laughs> yeah, honestly, like that is my wish, uh, you know, with like a big vision on the horizon and like, you know, you're still in location scouting and casting hasn't gotten complicated yet and you're not worried about anybody's schedules. What a great time. Because everything feels infinite and nothing's gone wrong yet, really. So yeah, uh, not, not a bad way. All right, moving on to tech news. This is a weird tech news, but I'm going to put it in tech news anyway. So this is very LA-centric. Those of you who've not lived in LA will not care as much, but I think it actually has applications to all filmmakers, so stick with us anyway. Quentin Tarantino has bought another movie theater. So this goes back to some echoes earlier where George and I were talking a couple weeks ago about the Arclight, which we love so much and and how we had hoped that someone would buy it. He didn't buy the Arclight, although I, I wish he would. And I think he probably could. But he did buy the Vista, which is a great single screen movie theater in Los Feliz. I used to live walking distance from there. I would go like twice a week. It's a wonderful theater. I saw Django Unchained there. And he's not going to do what he did with his first theater. The first theater, the New Beverly, is an old calendar house. It's been a calendar house forever. Calendar house means it's got a calendar. And I saw a double feature of The Conformist and Last Tango in Paris there. They used to do double features of like Godfather 1 and 2 on Christmas. You know, stuff like that. You'd see a double feature for nine bucks of two classic movies and film prints. There were a crowd of regulars. There was this one blonde guy in a motorcycle jacket who was at every single New Beverly screening I ever went to. Every single one. That was me. I was going like, that was, oh, yeah, I didn't recognize you because you're in you West Air now. Um, you know, and I was at the New Beverly like twice a month with my friends in LA. Me too. And he was always, always there. So with the Vista, he's making a different move. He wants to do new releases. And here's the tech news angle that are making a film print. And like when I used to go to the Vista all the time because it was one of the last new release theaters that would show film prints if they got them. And, you know, I saw Django Unchained there in 35, and it said in glorious 35 millimeter on the um, marquee. And uh, I think this is interesting and relevant. I think when we talk about all of the aspects that are going to have to hold together to keep that aspect of the medium of live. And again, I shoot mostly digital now. I haven't shot film in a decade outside of like class and teaching environments. But film is still a part of our medium and major director, you know, Kodak opened a new lab in Queens and they're so busy they can't be, keep up and they're already expanding it. Like film is still a part of it. But the actually, a lot of people seem to have been like, I'm going to fight to keep capturing on film, but I'm going to let film prints go. And I really like the fact that Tarantino is like, no, we're going to shoot film and we're going to release film. There's going to be film prints in theaters because that Vista film print is going to force some productions to make a film print they might not have already made. And you know, if you're a big enough filmmaker, big enough DP, big enough whatever, and you want your project to be on film, 
knowing there's at least one theater that will release it on film can help argue with studios and producers that it's worth the expense to do that. And then once you've done it, you've got that film print. And if like there's a massive EMF from a nuclear war and all the hard drives in the world get wiped and we have no more student debt, but we also have no more movies because they're all digital copies, you'll have that <laughs> film print that you can show in a theater. So I like it. I'm glad that Tarantino is like, I'm going to do first run 35 millimeter. I was not sure what your take was going to be. I'm surprised. I'm pleasantly surprised that it's this because I love it. And I know so many people who will argue with me, and I've brought it up on the podcast before, that it's not that different and that we need to let it go. And it's like, well, what what, what else do you want? You want it to be silent? You want it to be with you black and white and sometimes four by three? And sometimes I think, yeah, actually, I like all those things. But that point aside, like... I love seeing film and I feel it is very different. And I love, I've loved so many movies that were created in a digital medium that are beautiful, excellent, unique. There's so much that it opens up. And certainly in no film school, the digital revolution is what's made the democratization of filmmaking possible. But there's still absolutely a place for film. It's beautiful. I saw Old at a screening recently, the M. Night Shyamalan movie. And it, there was so early on, I was like, what is it with this movie? It's, it's different. It's warm. I, I feel this beauty to it. And it was 35. And I asked him about it. And he said that he felt nature doesn't photograph the same way. And there was so much nature that the beach and the sand and the water. I was like, I love it. Like, if you can choose, it's an artistic choice. Sometimes it makes sense. Sometimes it's too hard. But Quentin Tarantino choosing this, I love this as a tech point because it's like picking a different kind of paintbrush. And Quentin Tarantino is just saying in in whatever way he can flex the muscle to, like, I think we should still have a frame or a canvas that allows for artists to utilize this tool and this medium. I mean, he'll only do it, but, but some people can't do that. Some people have to go back and forth and that's fine. But I just love saying like, I want to plant a flag in this. I want to die on this hill. I want to make it possible to continue to see film projected, things shot on film, projected on film. It is different. It is unique. And it is part of the artistic expression. And I I just love that people are are trying to make sure that that main, it continues to be a part of it. But like, do you think it's enough? Like, do you think that he'll have enough movies to, to screen? That's a great question. And I don't know. Charles, what do you think? I mean, I think that there is a long history of making one-off prints of a variety of movies. I think there's some filmmakers who are very pro-digital who are like, you know, I think James Cameron was like, I don't want a single film print of the original Avatar in 2009. He was like, I want a 100% digital release. Although I think he had to make some film prints for international markets, I believe. It's been a while Mm. since I read about that. So yeah, I mean, I think that there's going to be certain projects where it's just run out. But yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, if you're you know, if you're doing the release strategy for Fast 9, if you're doing the release strategy for Star Wars, if you're doing the release strategy for any of those Marvel movies, those movies have traditionally done a little time at the Vista. You usually make a little money at the Vista. It's really relatively easy math to do, to be like, is it worth it for us to go ahead and make sure we do a print here? Mm. And since my suspicion is most filmmakers would like a film print if they could get one, like because even if you capture digitally, then you've got that film print that you've sort of got in perpetuity that you can stick in an archive that you, I think that there will be, I think there will continue to be film print options for most 
sort of tentpole releases. What won't end up showing at the Vista is like the fun indies. Those won't have prints for the most part. I mean, you've also made a good point that it makes it so a director or a producer or, or a film filmmakers behind a film can say like, hey, we do want to make some prints just because we want it to show. Like, that's something we just want to do. We want to show it at the Vista. We want to show some prints. Like, that's cool. Yeah. Like, the, it's, a, it's a play. There's a reason they, there's no, the, the counter can't be like, why? Like, where would you even put it? But I think that, I think it's a good question. And I want to point out, like, I love that. I love Steven Soderbergh and George Lucas and Robert Rodriguez and that all of those guys like refuse, they're like anti-film and they have been for a while. And they're like, we like this digital medium. We want to explore it. We want to push it. We see no reason to go back. That's great. Like, I think it's great that there's people who are like that and doing that. I'm just saying like, it's not an either or. I think it's great that we could exp- continue to expand the, the toolkit and the canvases and the mediums and the kinds of paints. And that makes, that enriches our experience. It makes the theater experience more meaningful and it gives artists another choice in how they tell their story. It, and I love that. I, I'm, so that's why I'm for it. I'm not saying like it, everything should be on film, you know, although I would like that. <laughs> All right. And then we should wrap up with Ask No Film School. So yeah, my Ask No Film School this week is what do you do when a client does not like anything that you're delivering? And for context, I've recently started working with a new client. It's a client that we really want to impress and do well with in the hope that there could be lots of future work. They shared with us a couple of references for a series of animations that we're going to make with them. and we delivered some designs that we thought were totally in keeping with those references, only to find that they don't like any of the designs and maybe don't even like the reference (laughs) that they shared with us. And then uh, we went back for a round two, delivered totally new ideas, and they still don't like any of them. And we're working to a tight deadline. So I'm a little stressed, and I'm wondering what you guys have done in situations like this. Yeah, this is a great question. I, m- most of what I can relate to this is I've been in a lot of producer management roles where I've been sort of between, you know, if it's on sponsored content, if it's been stuff with no film school, if it's been when I worked on some branded content as an independent producer and writer, you know, there, a position between sometimes an artist or a creator or the creative team and the the client or the business or the agency. So there's a lot of like telephone that happens in my experience. So my answer is more based on it becomes complicated because you have to relay notes, you have to relay impressions, and then you have to get, you have to formulate that so the creative team can do their best work and stay motivated. But then you also have to make sure you remember everything that they need to change. And then you also need to go back and buy time from a client. And I've been in that spot so many times. And I think that when you reach that point where you feel like nothing you're delivering is satisfying the client, it can be extremely demoralizing and you need to find a way if you can. I only really had this experience once to just get the creative side to commit to some kind of overhaul. 
<laughs> and and that was my the only like is there a version is there a way we can start over and be motivated and excited about something new to find some to instead of feeling like prisoners to someone's demands try and identify and 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 buy into some creative spark we have that maybe can get us going in a direction that they're excited about but the other thing that i would say is sometimes it's like just hold your nose and do exactly what they want and and get them to be as specific as possible and be like this is exactly what you said and and i'm not putting any fingerprints on it so there's like two completely different versions of of how to approach it but one version is just like this is exactly what you said you wanted or right. you get them to be you say like tell me exactly what you want all we want to do is deliver the thing you want so tell us lay it out and then- clearly this is a follow-up question. Maybe Charles, you can tackle this too. Like, what if client doesn't know what they want? Because uh, the frustrating thing for us here has been that it feels yeah, that's like usually the case, right? It, it feels like they they <laughs> sent us these references, but somehow, like, when we're basically lifting exactly from these references, it's not what they're interested in. Like, so how do you sort of get to what client wants? Yeah, Charles, why don't you jump? Uh, so I have, I have, I have a lot on this one. So I'm going to have to disagree with you a little bit, George, which is rare because usually we're sort of in sync, but I actually think the, I'm going to just try even harder to figure out what the client want. It doesn't work once you're already struggling at the beginning of the process. You have all these conversations about what are they looking for? And you try and get a sense of their vision. Once you're struggling that it's like, once the shark already has you in its teeth, trying to do what you were already (laughs) doing (laughs) <laughs> to get out of it doesn't usually work. You have to do something else to get out of it, in my experience. The other thing, and I say this to my students all the time, and I say this as someone who is occasionally a client, if a client knew what they wanted, they wouldn't be a client. So 40% of every job you ever do with a client is educational. You are teaching a client how to get to expressing what they want or how to like the thing you are making. and. You know, I, my students are all the time saying like, when do I get to the point in my career where I'm not teaching my clients anything? And I'm like, honestly, I bet never. Some of the top end collaborator, you know, professionals I know, editors, DPs, one of the highest end DPs I know, I was on a set operating for him with like the biggest director in music videos. And he was teaching her something about, they were doing this very weird effect. And he was like, patiently, calmly teaching her about this cool, like vintage piece of equipment they were using. Because from the top end to the bottom end, part of client services is always educational. It is always about teaching them how the process works and how to get what they want for them. And that never goes away. Because if a client already knew everything, they wouldn't need you, right? Soderbergh just shoots his own movies because he got so into cinematography. And, you know, No Sudden Move looks great. He clearly knows how to shoot a movie. And, you know, a client needs you because they don't know what they want, right? A client needs you to bring something that they don't even know how to ask for. So, uh, you know, some of this is like weird Jedi mind tricks. I used to have an artist that I would work with sometimes and I would watch them sit down with a client and the client would say, I was thinking this. And like the artist would literally, he was also very handsome, but he would say, actually, I don't think that's right for you. What you want is this. And he would just like start drawing a thing that was like not at all what they asked for. But by the end of the meeting, they were always super happy. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, like there is a little bit of like the, these, that this is the creative you're looking for. This is the Mm. approach you wanted that you, you kind of have to do, which is tough. And it's really hard to do remote. Like I've only seen uh, people yeah. do that in person, right? At, at Moss Eisley, when Alec Guinness does that at the Stormtroopers, it's not over Zoom. 
I don't think the force works over Zoom. So it's it's like a complicated thing. Usually what happens for me is when I'm, you know, because I've I had one, I had a color grading job last year where literally I was like, all right, so what are your it was a 100 percent remote job. It was a repeat client I'd worked with before. And I was like, all right, what are your references? Send me some stills, send me like let's talk. We talked all about references and images. He was obsessed with what was the movie? I, I forget, but like yeah, there's one very warm image in mind and we like agreed on it and I did a color grade and he's like, I didn't want like reddish orange. I wanted like bluish warm. (laughs) And I was like, well, traditionally we use the word cold for blue (laughs) and the image you sent me was orange and I went for this and you know, it took us like three rounds to get back to this very cool look, which is nice. It's a nice cool look. I think the work we did in the end was good, but it was nuts. And so like, you know, people are, the other story I tell all the time, uh, this was when I was a DP, I was in a color grading session with a director who was a musician and a colorist at Encore. And the director keeps saying, I want to bring this out. I want to bring this out. I want to bring out the green in the couch. Now to a colorist, bring out means turn off, take it out. So they were making less and less green in the couch. But this director was a musician. So bring out means bring to the forefront, like in a mix, like bring out that voice in a mix Mm -hmm. means bring it to the forefront. So these are just two people who both are working professionals who like literally were just using language to miscommunicate for like 20 minutes before I realized what was going on. And we were able to get back to a place where people liked. So it's like client services is complicated. When things flail, my first thing to do is stop. And I go back and I reread the first emails we we read. Wherever we were in the chain, wherever it started, I try and go back there and see if there was anything that I missed in the opening that's gotten us where we are now. Because mm. often there's like a miscommunication early on. So rather than trying to like sort out where we are, I try and go back to the beginning. The other thing I do is I remind myself that sometimes you hire the wrong people and that does not mean you are a bad person. I have been hired on jobs where I was the wrong fit and it just didn't work and it sucked and it felt awful. And I was like, I can't do the thing you want me to do because the thing, my instincts are in a different place. And for me to do the thing that I think is good, you don't like, you should not have hired me. That is an awful feeling. I hate it. I hope it never happens to me again. It's been a couple of years since it's happened. But when it happened, I was just, it was like, I even ended up sending like rough cuts of the, this was a directing project to a couple of friends. And I was like, am I crazy? What does everyone hate about this? What is happening here? And they were like, yeah, I have no idea. It's like a, a perfectly like it 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 does all of the things you were describing that they wanted to do. And I'm like, yeah, I don't I don't get it. But what they want is not me. They did they did not they should not have hired me. And that does not mean you are a bad human being. It is sometimes impossible to fix it when they just don't like what you are doing. The other thing I try and do when this is happening is I try and identify a different palette that I can go in to show them either a new direction or to show them, like sometimes clients will say something is totally wrong when it's like 5% wrong. So sometimes I'll try and show them an option that's like 80% wrong. So they'll realize we were actually only 5% off before. So that, you know, it takes extra work. You have to show an extra option. You have to present another set of boards or another set of designs, but it can help focus you in to be like, oh, so you're not interested. I'll just use color as an example. You're not interested in like this desaturated kind of thing. Like, what if we went for like Miami Vice? And then you do like a heavy Miami Vice grade. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. Actually, I don't need that much color. We were close. Let's just keep tweaking. So it's a, it's a difficult thing. Yeah. I mean, it is all harder remote. 
It is all harder. Yeah. You will, there will be some clients you just never make happy. Hmm. Yeah. That's definitely been a tough part of this too, is like a lot of the feedback that we're getting is just like, you know, comments on Google docs. And it's just really hard to like get to, especially when it comes to like visuals, it's very hard to figure out what specifically they are liking or not liking about certain things. And yeah, you know, there's only so many Zoom meetings, like it's just really hard to sync <laughs> in this remote in this remote world. <laughs> so so over it, you guys. I think some people enjoy the back and forth and they want and they think it's like we were saying at the beginning to circle back to the notes idea. I think some people think it's their job to find notes that are wrong and to go on and on and on and on. And I think that that maybe instead of, if I can, I think Charles is right. Absolutely. You have to teach people to find what they want. They're yeah. exact, following them exactly may be a, a complete nightmare. Um, and I may be completely wrong. But I would say that psychologically, what I think I was trying to get to by saying do what they want is separate yourself from it in as much as like Charles sort of hinted at like the idea of you're not a bad person. Like, okay, whatever, like whatever it takes to get through this and I'm not going to take it personally and I'm going to try to help this person get this project where they want it to be and I'm going to move on and I'm not going to care how many notes they give me and I'm not going to be beaten down by this back and forth process that they are, that they have trapped us in and I'm not going to, uh, this is my job. And I'm going to clock in, clock out and do what they ask and try to get it where they want it to be. And then, you know, because I think that what can happen is at least, so what I've experienced and witnessed is people become personally attached to the, what's wrong with it and what have I done wrong and what's wrong with me. And it should be the way I said, and I gave you the best version and you don't really want that other version. I think sometimes you can get trapped in something there that's like mm. personally taxing, where maybe all they're doing is what they think is their job, which is I'm supposed to give notes on 10 things today. And my boss wants me to be detail-oriented taskmaster like he, she is. And that means finding flaws. And that's my job. I've been told, like I've, I've told you before, Kat, I've been told by people before, like your job is to find like, look for the mistakes, like find the mistakes, which is, you know, like as a, in copy editing, yes. And by the way, I'm not very good at that. But if in, in, in most things, like sometimes, you know, the mistakes are subjective and they're, and it's worth trying to find the things that work as a note giver, if you're a client. And sometimes a lot of the people who are clients think their job is to just pick at something over and over again and get many revisions and get a lot of work for the money that they're spending, you know? Yeah. I think ultimately what I, Charles, I love what you said about needing to teach client because ultimately what I'm realizing after hearing both of you talk is we're getting bogged down in like these highly specific details about what, what client thinks is okay and not. And I think we've kind of lost, you know, is the message getting through to the viewer? Is the message legible? Is it, you know, captivating. And I think that's what I want to return to in my meeting with them today is like the reason why we're going in this direction, which maybe differs from what you guys feel is, you know, what you're looking for is because we feel that this will get the message across the best. And that's what we ultimately all want. Right. So thank you both. 
The only other thing, yeah, I, I, I agree. The only other thing I would say is that after every toxic, I mean, I don't know if this has gotten toxic. It just sounds frustrating. After, I mean, I think this should be done after every job, but I make sure it's done after every complicated job is I do a postmortem with, you know, with the internal team of, all right, that one went weird. Or that one went great. What did we do right that we want to do better next time? And we have a conversation about what things we want to implement sooner and how we want to manage it differently. Because it seems like one takeaway here is like, oh, the client needs management to keep their attention focused on bigger picture communication issues and not get lost in details. And we need to actively manage them to that. Like, that's a great thing to bring up at a postmortem. So your whole team is on that page. Because one thing that I see happening a lot is like, the project manager, I don't know what your role is in this, but like the project manager keeps that focus, but then like an editor gets all those notes from client and feels like they have to fix every one of those tiny little details. Right. And it's like, no, the editor also needs to understand, the whole team needs to understand at this phase where we're in, we're really focused on steering the client towards messaging. Mm -hmm. And then we'll worry about the tiny details of like text placement and link placement yes. in the final round of revisions. Yes, exactly. This is exactly what I should have communicated early last week. Anyway, thank you guys. This has been really great. <laughs> I'm feeling it is our pleasure. Feeling Thanks, optimistic Charles. about the meeting today. <laughs> all right, plug in pluggables. I'm online at Charles Hayne. You can watch my work at all my stuff is at Amazon Prime right now. Angels Purchase, my feature, Salty Pirate is the feature that caused me to have fights with two friends about their note-giving process, although we've since made up because it's important to make up with your old friends. But you can see what was so controversial, I guess. I don't think it's that controversial. And uh, yeah, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hayne. And I'm Kath Tolentino, writer, filmmaker, producer. I'm on Instagram at borderwoman.pictures for my production company, Border Woman Pictures. You can also see works that I've directed at vimeo.com slash Catherine Tolentino, my name. And I'm your gentleman, editor-in-chief at No Film School. You can read about all these stories and more at nofilmschool.com. Like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram. Please go over to YouTube and watch a video that Charles shot that is really cool of Wheelie Boys in New York. Wheelie it's Boys. All a, it's really cool. It's all about shooting at night. Right, Charles? And I just love it. it. It came out so great. And there's a lot you can learn about night shoots and low light cinematography, moving the camera in low light cinematography. It came out really well. We're really happy with it. And Black Magic Design was involved. Yeah, if you liked the Wheelie Boys, you should follow them all on Instagram. It's linked on the YouTube. And that is a that is a movie that that is a little video with like the smoothest client process ever. So, yeah, that was <laughs> indeed. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes that was, it's just like you come up with something and it works and it's good. And everybody's on the same page. It was fun. And, you know, check out the other podcasts. I mentioned a few of them. We have some really cool ones. Um, Ed Solomon, who wrote No Sudden Move, he was really great. And buried in there are some stories that are just so funny that he tells. He's a great storyteller. Duh, he's a writer. Uh, Neil Papashudo or Navo Papashudo for. Gunpowder Milkshake, which comes out this week. That one you can check out. And M. Knight is on the podcast talking about old, his latest movie. So you're going to have to check that out too. So stay tuned. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>